So you can open up to Colossians, as I said. I want to start today with a kind of a long background, uh, since this is an introductory message. Um, we find Paul in prison in Rome as he's writing this book. So in 4.10, he talks about his fellow prisoner. In 4.18, he asks them to remember his chains. And apparently a man named Epaphras from Colossae uh, visits Paul in Rome and he reports on the condition uh, of the church there, which is what prompts Paul to write this letter. Now, Colossae was a, a minor town in Asia Minor, today's Turkey. Uh, one person said about it, it's easily the least significant city which any of Paul's surviving letters were addressed. Uh, the major church in this region of Asia Minor was Ephesus. Uh, Colossae isn't mentioned in Acts. Uh, if you remember in the book of Revelation, those seven churches of Asia Minor, Colossae is not mentioned there. Uh, Paul had never visited uh, this particular church. He talks about he's heard of them, that they haven't seen him face to face. But um, it seems like Epaphras, this man who visited Paul in Rome, uh, probably heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, where Paul spent two years, and then he brought it back to Colossae and founded the church there. Uh, so even though this church is small, even though this church is from an insignificant city, God had people there. God had a church there. And so it, it was, it was important. This place was important. This, this book was important. It, it so belies the very, uh, thoroughly modern and thoroughly dumb idea that the bigger the church, uh, the greater the God's favor. Uh, this church in Colossae, and we should remember all along, uh, is, is an example that God loves all of his people everywhere, big and small, and that Jesus is building every church. Sometimes he builds large, sometimes he builds small, but it is always he that builds. Now, the hard question about the book of Colossians is, what exactly was the problem that Paul is addressing uh, here that Epaphras had, had brought to him? Uh, it seems clear that there is some kind of, some form of false teaching going on. Uh, it's not clear and commentators disagree but I think we can begin to glean from the things that Paul actually addresses here, what the issues here, perhaps best summed up in the 1972 Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Oh yeah. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. I don't care what they may say. I don't care what they may do. I don't care what they may say. Jesus is just all right. I don't care what they may know. 
I don't care where they may go. I don't care what they may know. Jesus is just all right. But brothers and sisters, as you well know, Jesus is more than just all right. Jesus is um, all right, and he is all sufficient. The gospel is more than just all right. The gospel is completely sufficient to save. But this false teaching would say more is needed. You needed Jesus plus. You needed the gospel plus. You needed some type of obedience plus what Scripture laid out. And regarding Epaphras then, it called into question uh, the gospel that he had brought to them and the, and the teaching that he had led them in for many years and the implications for their daily lives. The question that these false teachers were stirring up was, was this. Have, have you been given the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So Paul is going to basically argue three things here. The first is that Jesus is not only sufficient, but he is supreme, that he is preeminent. Colossians contains some of the most glorious, some of the most sublime passages uh, unpacking the person and work of Jesus for us. And it seems clear from Paul's writing that somehow Jesus had been, had been relegated to a, a secondary place by these false teachers. Curtis Vaughn says, it did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. It gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place that should have been his. Secondly, Paul argues that the gospel itself is sufficient that nothing needs to be added to the gospel. A few examples in 1.3, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is a finished work of the gospel. There's not something that needs to be added to it. In 2, 3 through 4, Christ in whom are hitting all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And then in 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells and you have been filled in him. In other words, in Christ and in the gospel, you have the fullness of the grace of God, all that you need to walk out this Christian life that you have been called to. That uh, there's nothing that needs to be done to complete or, or perfect or supplement this simple elementary gospel and faith that Epaphras had brought to them. And then thirdly, the gospel does have implications for how you live, but while one lives is an outflow from the gospel, not a necessary addition to the gospel. That we're not saved by our holiness. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our actions. We don't need to add 
to the finished work of Christ. We don't need to add to the perfections of uh, the gospel. Uh, we're not we're not saved by those things. Now we are called to holiness. So Paul addresses that in a variety of ways. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 2.6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. And then 2.16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 18, insisting on asceticism. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, don't let anyone add to the simple uh, obedience, uh, the simple walking in a manner worthy of this gospel that you have received. Which brings us to uh, the first eight verses in Colossians, which we're going to cover today. So please hear the very words of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Father, uh, I pray as we uh, just begin this study of Colossians that these simple, basic truths that Paul unpacks for us even here in this introduction would guide us and would encourage us that uh, like the Colossians, there is so much coming our way that calls into question the sufficiency of Jesus, the the sufficiency of the gospel that uh, so much more needs to be added. We need to do this, and we need to do that, and we have to have this, and we have to have that in order to truly be Christian. I, I pray that this book that just brings it back to the basic truths of the person work of Jesus, of the gospel, and the implications that that has for our life, that uh, it would deeply affect this wonderful church, encourage this church, and set it on this path of holiness that's firmly grounded in Jesus, in the gospel, and in God's word. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 1 and 2, Paul um, 
starts with a typical greeting. And, and Paul's greetings, as I think you're well aware, they're not just throwaways. They're not just boilerplate that he just sticks into his letter. Every word of his greeting has meaning. Every word of his greetings are, are purposeful. Um, so right from the very beginning and through actually these eight verses we're going to look at today, every word that Paul says is meant to reinforce the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufficiency of the gospel, and the reality uh, and the ownership that the Colossians have in Jesus and in uh, the gospel. And so he greets from Paul and Timothy. Now, uh, Timothy probably wasn't a co-author uh, of, of this letter. Uh, Timothy probably just wrote it out for him, was basically his secretary, because Paul uses I throughout. So this is, this is a letter from Paul. And uh, Paul calls himself an apostle here because he, he wants to primarily address matters of truth. And he wants to uh, address matters of behavior that aren't optional. So when, when Paul calls upon his apostolic authority, it's as, it's as if he's presenting his, his credentials to the Colossians, his authority to the Colossians. It's like uh, when the police or the FBI, if they ever knock on your door, I hope they don't, but uh, they'll pull out their badge, they'll pull out their credentials. Um, that badge is a symbol of their authority. And Paul is, is establishing, even though he's never been there, he's establishing his apostolic authority to, to write to them and to uh, correct them. He's establishing the official character of this book, that this is, this is not just some good advice, some good counsel from an experienced pastor. Uh, this is God's very words uh, to them that he is writing to them, even though he's personally unknown. And he points out that this apostolic ministry is by uh, the will of God. There are a lot of apostles running around in these days. Maybe even these false teachers were claiming to be apostles. But Paul is making it clear. My apostolic ministry is not by any human appointment. I didn't go before a committee and get interviewed and approved as an apostle and sent out as an apostle. It is God himself, Jesus himself, who commissioned me way back on the road to, uh, to Damascus, who commissioned me to this ministry to the Gentiles that I, that I'm carrying out today. So he, 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 he explains himself writing the letter and he explains his authority and the, the, the weight of the official character of this writing. And then he addresses the Colossians as saints and faithful brothers. This term saints in the New Testament is, is full of meaning. A saint means God's, God's holy set apart people. Uh, we, uh, saint, saint isn't, um, like a, a, a Catholic saint today that has, uh, accomplished some great things or, or miracles. Saint is simply an expression of 
every one of God's people, that as a result of God's electing grace, that as a result of God's setting them apart for him, is established as holy before God because of God's setting apart. So when his people are called uh, saints, it is, it is full of meaning to them. You're part of God's people. God has set you apart for a purpose. And there is an expectation then of uh, a life that benefits uh, that purpose in their, in their character and in their service. And then he adds this, that they are faithful, that they are actually living up to this status that they have of being set apart, that, that they have lived loyal to Jesus. They have lived loyal to the gospel. They're running the race well, despite what these false teachers are trying to tell them. And then that they are brothers and sisters, that they are subjects of this familial affection that comes with being able to call God their father, and that they are all of this in Christ at Colossae. Now, in Christ is is one of the most important terms in the New Testament. It's a term that Paul uses over and over again in all his letters. In Christ is, is an expression of the grounds upon which their position as saints, their, their holiness, their faithfulness, the grounds of their position. Uh, they were, and brothers and sisters, we are who we are. They were who they were only because of this union with Christ, this relationship they have with him, the fact that they are in him or in Christ, not only with him, but with one another. So everything we are as Christian saints, brothers, is because of this union that we have in him that God actually established before the foundation of the world, before all of creation. Louis Burkhoff says it this way, this union may be defined as that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of with he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. And again, this is, this is Paul pointing to Jesus supremacy. It's pointing to Jesus sufficiency. The fact that they are in Christ is the source and the only source they need for life and strength, for blessedness and salvation. And then grace and peace to them. Now, uh, again, I think we can, it's so easy to just read over grace and peace. But grace and peace, these two words in, a, in condensed form express the essence of Paul's theology. When Paul says grace and peace, he's, he's summarizing his theology. They are the reason for his gospel. They are the prime effect of the gospel that Paul wants them to experience. First of all, grace. God's, God's unmerited favor towards sinners. The daily need of each and every Christian, not just to be saved, but to enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Grace, which represents God's love 
for unworthy sinners like you and I that he manifested at the cross. It's, it's a word that in many ways sums up the gospel. In fact, in, in Acts 20, 24, uh, Paul calls it the gospel of uh, the grace of God. That it, it's a gospel where nothing, nothing is deserved. We don't, we don't bring any merit to the table. And, and, and nothing is achievable. We have no means to earn this salvation. So when Paul wishes grace to them, he, he's wishing them all the blessings, all, all of the, um, all of the love of God that they didn't merit, they couldn't achieve, but God freely gives to sinners because of the gospel, because of the cross. And, and then, uh, peace. Uh, peace really has two meanings when Paul uses this this way. Uh, there's, there's an objective peace that we have with God. We, we are actually at peace with Him that's captured in Scripture by the term reconciled. That when we are justified, when we are declared righteous before Him, we're, we're, we're brought back into a right relationship with Him. This, this relationship, this separation that sin caused uh, has now been removed and we've been reconciled. And the God whom we were hostile to, the God who we we're at enmity with, we are now at peace with. But, but the term even captures more than that. Uh, the, the Old Testament uh, word for peace, shalom, was a word that was just full of meaning. It, 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 it meant wholeness. That when, when, when we experience shalom, when we experience this peace of God, it means that everything that fell apart because of sin, everything that disintegrated because of sin, everything that was whole and now shattered because of sin, that, that, that the peace of God is now reintegrating those things. It's, it's making us whole again. It's making us whole in our relationship with Him. It's making us whole in our, um, in, in our, in our walk with Him. So this objective peace is, is just a, a another rich blessing of the gospel that we have because of God's grace. In many ways, it, it, it's, it's a word that captures just, just like grace captures uh, the reason for the gospel. It, it, it captures the effect of the gospel in our lives. It captures the blessings of the, the, the gospel in our lives. But it's also subjective that because we we are in this right relationship, God, because we're reconciled to him. We can live with assurance. We can live tranquil. We can live confident. We can live content no matter what circumstances are going on in, in our lives. Because we have this objective peace with God, now we have this subjective peace in our souls because uh, of it. It's why, again, in Ephesians, Paul calls it the gospel of peace. So this greeting is, is full of, of meaning to them. It's, it's expressing who God is 
to them, who they are in Christ and, and what the effects, uh, of, uh, their union with him and being called saints and set apart for God, what those effects are. And then in, uh, the rest of the passage, uh, three through eight, he moves on to thanksgiving. And this thanksgiving is, is completely sincere. Uh, Paul is, uh, Paul is completely sincere in everything he thanks them for, but it's also intended to reassure them. Uh, the saints at Colossae. I, I love pastoral prayer, and thank you, Josh, for your wonderful pastoral prayer this morning. The number one reason for pastoral prayer is because God answers prayer, and we have the ability to call out to him. But pastoral prayer also, it expresses values. It's It's a teaching moment. It helps the church to understand what's important to the pastors, what they believe uh, God is is doing and 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 having them involved in and and praying for and and so with Paul's thanksgiving, that he is sincere, he is thankful, he is grateful for these things. But everything he says here is again meant to reassure the Colossians. Colossians, you you have the true gospel. Colossians, you're, you're living out, uh, the true faith. Don't, don't let anyone say something needs to be added. So don't let anyone say, uh, it's not sufficient. That's not true. So first, as always, he addressed his thanksgiving to God the Father. Uh, but not just God the Father, but God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With the emphasis here really being on Jesus that, that Paul wants his readers to know that Jesus isn't some lesser or separate deity, that he is God the Son, that he is the uh, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he addresses his thanks to the Colossians. And again, this is meant to reassure. In 2.18, which you'll hit later, Paul says to them, don't let anyone disqualify you. See, the false teachers were trying to disqualify them. You, you, you haven't gotten the right gospel, you're disqualified. You, what you believe, at, you know, you're disqualified. And you're, you're not walking in a manner of worthy. You're disqualified. But Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. And to that end, the things that he says in this introduction are helping them to know, no, no, you are completely qualified. Don't, don't let people, you are qualified. You don't need to qualify and you can't be disqualified. So don't let anyone do that to you. Uh, the false teachers have come in and, and they've, they've called into doubt the completion of the Colossians faith. They've, they've called into doubt that, you know, did this Epaphras guy really give you the whole truth? Did he, did he give you the complete gospel? And Paul's thanksgiving, every word of Paul's thanksgiving is meant to assure them that, that he did. Uh, and that's why Paul uh, thanks them in the particular way he did, three ways in particular when we'll look at each one. Paul reassures them they're true Christians. Secondly, Paul's reassured them they heard the true gospel. 
And thirdly, he reassures them that Epaphras is a true man of God. All things they needed to know. First of all, he reassures them in verses 4 and 5a that they are true Christians. What what does a genuine Christian look like? Is, Is there a way that we can easily sum up what a Christian looks like? And throughout Scripture, Paul and others uh, use these terms, faith and love and hope. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, in this case, faith, love, and hope. They're fundamental Christian virtues that when, when we see those things, not perfectly because none of us are perfect, we're all in process, but, but when we see those things genuinely, it's a sign that we've received the the true gospel, that we've genuinely been saved. And so Paul points them to that, particularly the importance of faith and love. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul uh, addressing another uh, issue of things needed to add to the gospel or the gospel being insufficient. He writes to the Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. These, these critical virtues. So he points them to their faith. Since you heard about, we heard about your faith. In other words, when Epaphras came to Rome and spoke to Paul, uh, even though he was reporting that there were troubles, he was also giving him a good report uh, about their faith in Jesus Christ, their faith that rested in and was anchored upon Jesus and his person and his finished work on their behalf. And then the love that they showed for uh, all the saints. He finishes made known uh, by the Spirit. It's, it's not a love that was self-attained. It's not the kind of love that just people naturally show to one another. It was this uh, agape love. It was this, it was this um, not self-serving, but other-serving love. It was this sacrificial love and care for the brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Epaphras repointed, uh, appointed to Paul and he said, yeah, there's these troubles, but Paul, these people love each other. They care for one another. It's, a, it's, it's the fruit of the spirit in their lives that we see in a regular basis and that this faith and love are because of something. They're because, it's because of the hope that is laid up for you in the word of truth, the gospel. Now note that when Paul talks about the hope laid up for him, he's talking about their eternal inheritance. He's, he's, he's talking about the fact that they have now entered into eternal life, but upon death, they will experience the fullness of that life. And then upon the second coming, when Jesus raises their bodies, uh, then they will experience the consummation. But notice that it's already laid up for them in heaven. It's something that they already possess. And because they possess this hope, then it, it, it motivates, it, it drives, it enables this sacrificial love for others. It enables this, this sacrificial life of walking in a manner worthy of of the gospel. Uh, years ago, 
when I, I, I teach the doctrine of the end times at pastor's college, uh, I just did a study of the, of the New Testament and I marked every New Testament passage that had a reference to, uh, the second coming of Christ or eternity. Uh, a shocking amount of material, uh, by the way. But what really struck out to me is throughout scripture, the hope of eternal life is held out as the primary motive for living the Christian life now. Um, let me just give you one example from Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, and they have, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Put off the old self, put on the new self. So do you see what Paul did here? First of all, he points them to the fact that they have been raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, and that's where their minds should be. But then he points them to this. When Christ, your life, appears, you will appear with him, put to death, therefore. And so he points them to the fact that because they already have this hope of eternal life, which is one of the great hopes of the gospel, that um, their love and their faith are springing from that hope, which is another sign of the genuineness of uh, their salvation, which is another sign that they are true Christians. Secondly, he reassures them that they've heard the true gospel, that the word of truth, the gospel. It seems the false clergies had been claiming Epaphras, he didn't give you the whole gospel. And Paul is saying, no, no. That, that simply is not the case. The gospel that, that you have and is bearing the fruit of faith, hope, and love in your life, that, it, that gospel in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing. The gospel that you received is the same gospel that throughout the world is bearing fruit and growing. It's bearing fruit and growing. You don't need a new and improved gospel. Uh, the, this gospel is working just fine. This gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing uh, throughout the world. And then uh, finally, he, he reassures them that Epaphras is a true man of God. And um, he says in verse seven, that you learn this gospel from Epaphras. Now, I don't know what Paul called Epaphras. I'd call him a church planter. I think Epaphras would have been a, a, a right good sovereign grace guy because it's very apparent that when Epaphras heard the gospel and being from Colossae, he just couldn't wait to get back to Colossae and tell his friends and his family and the people there in this seemingly insignificant town about the good news of, of the gospel. He was, he was faithful to bring that gospel. And then in verses seven and eight, Paul commends him this way. Epaphras, our beloved faithful servant, a faithful minister. So it's not only important that he commends the gospel, it's important that he commends the man that brought them the gospel. 
and that this man is a faithful minister of the gospel. Later on in 4, 12, and 13, he says he's one of you. But he's not just one of you. He's a, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's the real deal. He's an authentic messenger uh, of the gospel. And Paul is saying, I'm, I'm grateful for men like this. I'm grateful for fellow workers. These are men that are worthy of honor. A uh, band can come up. Brothers and sisters, the, these are these are truths that are challenged in every generation, aren't they? They're truths that are challenged in our generation. Different ways, subtle ways, might not always be the same, but there are always truths that are going to be challenged. The, the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, of Jesus, his person and work. All of the early church controversies and, and um, conferences and creeds, they all had to do with what, what is the nature of Jesus' person? And what was the nature of Jesus' work? Uh, but those things are still challenged throughout the years. Uh, we live in a time where so many people just look at Jesus as, well, he's a good moral example. You know, we want to, we want to, what would Jesus do? We want to, we want to be like him. Uh, he was, he was a good teacher. He, he taught some good stuff, but he's only one of many ways to God. But no, there is no other name under heaven and earth by which person can be saved. So we need to constantly stand against this challenge to the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. And then the sufficiency and simplicity of the gospel. Paul urges them in 123 not to shift away from that hope because in, in the gospel we have redemption. In the gospel we have forgiveness. In the gospel we have reconciliation. In the gospel we have peace. In the gospel in Christ we have been given all that we need in order to be in a right relationship with God, to regularly be the recipients of his glorious grace, and to know one day this hope we have of eternal life is a sure hope, so that no matter what circumstance we might experience in life, we know that God will be with us and care for us and keep us till the very end. And, and then the sufficiency and simplicity of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What, what does God require of me? And there's always these temptations to, to license. Well, he doesn't require anything of you. Come on, it's grace and, and, and you're free. But most of all, and uh, I think this is what we see in Colossians, is the temptation to legalism. That, oh, yeah, the gospel is okay, but man, if you don't do this and if you don't do that, and um, or then uh, you're, you're on the outs with God and you got to earn your way back in. And uh, so when when Paul talks about the asceticism and a new moon festival, that that's just that was just the way legalism expressed there. But legalism expresses itself all the time in our day and always has, living as if our relationship with God is based on what we do or don't do rather than on the finished work of Christ. That my performance is what matters, not what is true, the performance of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.